0: Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes, and I know you're thinking, this is why we came today, right? For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to worship the living God? This is the word of the Lord. So, there are two episodes back to back in season four of Friends That I Love. Uh, and the episode has this arc where we enter some tension between roommates, Joey and Chandler, sort of a real life burden Ernie of the time. And so we enter this tension, and it goes like this Joey had been seeing a girl named Kathy. And they were getting along well. She was on for a couple of episodes. But unbeknownst to Joey, Chandler is also attracted to Kathy. But he suppresses, as he always does, these emotions, and Joey doesn't know anything about it. That is until one day Chandler and Kathy are alone in their apartment, and one thing leads to another, and they kiss each other. Now, they both panic because they realize the pain that this kind of thing will cause Joey, and they love Joey. Who doesn't love Joey? And they love Joey, and so they panic because of the the implications of this on his spirit, his life, their friendship, and so on. So Chandler comes up with a plan, and he tells Kathy the plan, which is, we basically forget this ever happened. We swallow our feelings forever. Does that sound good? He asks her. And she's like, well, we can't just forget that it happened. And so the show goes on. Well, the guilt keeps eating away at Chandler. And so to suppress that, he moves on to the next stage. And what he does to uh, deal with his guilt is he buys all new furniture for him and Joey in the apartment. And it's really cool stuff. It's like new chairs, a new TV. There's a new remote control cabinet to open the doors to see the new TV. It's all really, really nice. Stuff And one day Joey comes home and sees it, and he just flips out because there's all this new great stuff in the house. And when he asks Chandler, why did you do this? Why did you buy all this stuff? Chandler has an opportunity, but he bypasses it and says to Joey, I just wanted to do this because you're such a good friend. Well, the guilt keeps eating away at Chandler. And eventually, in a moment of transparency, he tells Joey what had happened between him and Kathy thinking that maybe if I just tell him and I seem remorseful about it, that he'll let it go and just sort of see it as the mistake it was. And they just move on in their friendship. But Joey flips out. It's kind of a funny scene because he says, well, did you sleep with her? And he says, no, 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 I just kissed her. And he says, well, that's worse. It's a great Joey line. So they have this argument about, they get into an argument about this whole situation And then Joey does the math in his head, and you can see this happening on his face. Uh, He does the math in his head about all the furniture in the room and in the apartment that that Chandler had bought. And he says, oh, you bought all this stuff to sort of try to cover over this sin that you've committed, right? This is what is happening. And then there's uh, this argument that ensues, and Joey basically says this great line about all the stuff in the apartment that it is, quote, tainted with your betrayal. Now, for a comedy series... That's a pretty profound line, if you think deeply enough about it, that our outward attempts to sort of cover over the wrongdoings that we've done end up becoming, more often than not, public reminders of our guilt. It's a profound line. Well, the guilt just keeps eating away at Chandler, and all he really wants at this point is to be friends again with his roommate. So he basically says, I'll do anything. And so Joey's plan is that Chandler must sit for six hours in a box. You got to sit in this box for six hours. And he says, okay, that's what he does. Anything that he needs to do to be forgiven. And my question for you is, have you ever been in the box? I would say the box is a metaphor, but it's really not. It's one of endless examples of, these outward physical things that we do when we are seeking forgiveness, redemption, when we just want to make things right with a friend or a spouse or a coworker, we do all kinds of things. And you might not think you do, but you have a pattern as a human being. You have a pattern of seeking out redemption in your relationships. If I were to ask someone very close to you, so when they do something wrong, when they offend you, when they know that they've offended you or when they've really hurt you, like what are the steps that this person takes to sort of make things right. And they may say, if they don't do anything, they just ignore it because they're a terrible person. Um, but for the, for the most part, most of you in the room, if not all of you, your friend would say, oh, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. They do this, and then they say this, and then they try this, and then they buy me things, and it's wonderful. Uh, you have a certain track of steps. We all do. We have these tracks of steps that we take when we're seeking out forgiveness. We all do these things when we're trying to make things right. And if forgiveness is an economy, if it's a business, the currency is ritual. The currency is outward ritual, behavior to try and seek out redemption. And the question that we're asking today and the question that the writer of the Hebrews text is asking is, does it really work? Do those things actually make a difference Does it work? Now, the text that we just read is very strange. We have to say that. I mean, there's like all this talk of bulls and goats and blood and heifers and holy places. It's like you don't know if we're talking about religion or some sort of nightly event at Burning Man gatherings. We don't really know what's happening in the text. It's a very strange text. But the writer is doing something quite extraordinary, and he's referencing a different text. He's referencing an Old Testament chapter, which is Leviticus chapter 16. And this is the chapter in the Bible that talks about Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, or if you're just wondering, September 16th of last month. And so this is a massive holiest of holy days on the Jewish calendar, and he's referencing some of the things that go with that. Now, you may, uh, I know that you're reading Leviticus this time of year, but I want to show you what Leviticus looks like structurally. I don't know. I've got a little card here, but we took a picture of it. Yeah, do you see that? You probably can't read it. Let me read it to you. So the way that Leviticus is structured is that the themes of Leviticus and the topics of Leviticus, they pour into and out of the central event. So uh, the first few sections you have at the top talks a lot about rituals and sacrifices. Then it talks about priests and their roles, and it talks about purity, and then it lands into this Yom Kippur couple of chapters, and then it begins to move back out, backing up into purity again, and then to priests, and then into the rituals. Now, the writers do this. This is all throughout the Old Testament. I kind of want to make a coffee table book with just photos of how it's structured like this. These are done for certain reasons. Uh, They structure books and passages like this for memory. It's easier to remember, or easier, but also because it highlights the most important piece of the story or the text or the book itself. And in this case, it is the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, the day when the high priest of Israel goes into the holiest of holies in the tabernacle and eventually the temple and offers sacrifices once a year, annually once a year, for himself and for the priesthood, the household of priests, and then also for all of the people of Israel. Now, the steps they take are very interesting. There's this bull that is offered on behalf of the priest and the priesthood, and then there are two goats that are, one is sacrificed and one is set free. Feist is, you can imagine, they kill the goat, they put it on the altar. It's very weird. The second goat, the priest comes out and lays his hands on the head of the goat, transferring all the sins of all of Israel onto this goat. And then they run the goat into the wilderness and they disappear forever. It's called the scapegoat. And uh, the symbolism there is the first goat represents the forgiveness of all the sins of Israel that year. The second goat represents the forgetfulness of God, never to return. These sins are never to come back. So there's a lot of symbolism that takes place in Yom Kippur. And the thing about it is uh, we talk about the Ten Commandments, but Israel's ethical laws were very rigorous. It's not just the 10. There are 613 laws and commands that fill the Torah. They're not impossible to live by, but it's just too many. You're going to mess up. In the shadow of all of those commandments, and in the shadow of such a rigorous ethical system, imperfection is you cannot hide it. You cannot live a perfect life, none of us. And these rituals that the priest would do on the day of atonement, these rituals were simply um, uh, rituals of ceremonial cleansings. They would cleanse the people, the land, and the places of worship. And there's a, this verse at the very end of chapter 16 uh, where the, the command says, this shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the people of Israel once a year for all their sins. Once a year for all their sins. Now that once a year phrase is so important because it pictures for us this ongoing spiritual anxiety. If church were uh, a weekly confessional, which it isn't, but if it was, like you came in the door and this is the this is the time where we hear your sins or we make sacrifice for your sins. There's an ongoing spiritual anxiety that can happen because we have to keep returning to our sins and with our sins. Now the rituals on Yom Kippur are not meaningless. That's not what the writer is saying. But he is saying they are limited. Like Chandler in a box is not the means of forgiveness. It's just an outward sign of his intent. He wishes to be forgiven. Forgiveness actually is beyond the borders of whatever rituals we can do. Forgiveness is in the hands of the offended. Does that make sense? True forgiveness lies in the hands and in the heart and in the life of the one who has been offended, not in anything that we can do. So true forgiveness is only in the hands of the one who has been wronged. Now, you know this. We have developing in our world a public liturgy of forgiveness. It has nothing to do with religion. This is just what's happening in our it goes. It goes like this. A public figure fails. You fill in the blank with what it is. And then the liturgical steps begin. There's an apology that they make. No one believes it, but we require it. There's an apology that they make. And then in some cases, they lose their job or they step down. Either way, they're no longer working in that field. That's what happens. Then, almost like there's this new sense of calling on the person who has done the wrong to give money to certain causes that fight against the thing that he or she has done. This newfound sense of Uh, I'm very interested in this now. And so they give money to these causes that have to do with fighting what they have imposed on the world. And in some cases, like the goat in Leviticus 16, these people disappear forever. This is what they do. And sometimes these things should happen. We should always apologize for the things that we do wrong. We should do that. Sometimes losing a job is what has to happen. It's always good to donate to causes that fight injustice. Amen. We should do that. But we all know in our heart that these are just empty rituals. They don't mean anything. Because we don't actually forgive these people. But we need to see them go through the hoops. And these behaviors have nothing to do with actual forgiveness at all. They're just cultural rituals of a supposed remorse. There's lots of research now. Again, this isn't religious, but it's referencing religious uh, practices, particularly the 90s. If you grew up in the 90s, uh, this is a new purity culture that's developing. And the implications of that are worth pondering. But forgiveness is beyond these things. It's great when people do them. It's great when they show remorse. But forgiveness doesn't live there. It can't. It's in the hands of the offended. And the writer of the Hebrews text asks the question, uh, if we go back to that, he asks the question, look, if all these rituals we did and do at Yom Kippur are powerful and the symbols are powerful, he's like, if all of that, all of the blood that is on the floor of these rituals, if that at least purifies the outward, that's what he says, the flesh, if that purifies the flesh, great. How much more, the writer asks, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Our conscience. You know this. Even if we do all the things and take all the steps, a troubled conscience typically remains. And for most of us, whatever sins that we will wrestle with throughout our lives will mostly exist unknown to anyone else. There are many reasons for that. One, because people aren't that forgiving, so we keep those things to ourselves. But secondly, we just don't like being that transparent. So most of the sins that we wrestle with will be unknown to anyone around us. I've been a pastor a long time, and I understand it exactly when someone comes up to me and they say, this is an outwardly together person. And they say, you know, I'm not that great of a person. I know exactly what they mean. There's a troubled conscience outwardly. We would all look at these people and go, wish I could have their life, their Bible, their knowledge, their acts of worship. But I get to sit in the seat where these people open up to me and say, I'm not that great of a person. Pastors hear all kinds of weird things. I think just being in the presence of a pastor sometimes causes people to say things they didn't need to say. (laughs) I think I've told this story before, but when we were uptown, we were getting our copy machine fixed uh, or we were buying a new one or something, and the copy machine sales guy rep comes in, great-looking guy. I mean, just a young guy, fresh out of college, in sales. I don't think he cares about copy machines, but that's what he was doing. And he was in our office, and there are like three or four of us in there, and uh, he's not there 10 minutes, and he sits down on the couch, and it's kind of quiet because we're looking through the materials. We're talking about ink and paper size and features, and hole punch, and staples. And in a moment of silence, he says to me, so uh, I moved in with my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, and I'm looking through the stuff, and I'm going, uh-huh, that's great. How's that going? But I think, like, he maybe he hadn't been in a church in years, and he's just sitting in front of us pastors, and he's like, well, now's the time. I'm carrying around this thing, a little hot potato to the pastor. Here you go. If I forgive you, do we get 10% off on the... Yeah, that was a free story that wasn't in my notes. He has notes? Okay, but you know how that is. I mean, like, we can... I say it this way... Theologically, a lot of us enter these holy places all dressed up, but on the inside, we're falling apart. And this is what the writer is saying that the rituals can't do. They can't. We think they can, but they can't. I like what Paul says in um, Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. And I want you to hear his words and the self-reflection that's going on. I'll start with verse 14, actually. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Can you hear this? None of us would write this. But he's just laying it out there saying, I can't operate by this. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin it dwells within me. And so the writer of our text is just encouraging us and saying, that's the way it is. We can keep on trying to jump through these religious hoops, these cultural hoops to be absolved of our wrongdoing, but what remains is the reality within us. And so again, I read, from Hebrews, for if the blood of the goats and the bulls and the sprinkling of ashes and the heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? If you look in verse 12, speaking of Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy place. When I was making notes on this, um, I took a picture and I said, oh, the writer of Hebrews has edited Leviticus 1634. In 1634, on the day of atonement, the instructions is the priest will do this once a year for all of the sins of Israel. But the writer of Hebrews glosses over that. It says once for all. And so when we take communion every week, it's an interesting practice. But communion is the reminder of God's mercy and grace over us. And it functions as a kind of anti sacrifice, an anti ritual. Because there's the message within the communion that says to us there's nothing you need to do, it's once for all. Amen? Once for all now whatever the implications are for you for that is up to you but as a preacher of the gospel I stand before you and say once for all Men loves angels and black and white welcome everyone in. children dreaming of wrong and right, wrapped in grace and sin.